This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We'll read a few verses from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Tonight's speech is about the church. And the church is not the building in which Christians meet although many Christians will call their meeting places church buildings. The church is rather the people of God. For all those who belong to Jesus Christ are the church. In fact, the church cannot be understood without Jesus Christ. He said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Ephesians 5.23, we read, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Therefore, without Christ... There is, and can be, no church. And your relationship to Christ will determine your relationship to his church. If you belong to Christ, you belong to his church. If you do not belong to Christ, you do not belong to his church. So what is the church? And how does the Bible describe the church. Well, first, the Bible describes Christ's relationship to his church in terms of two figures or illustrations. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, which means that Christ is the head of the church. And that's figurative language. The body head illustration is a biological illustration. The idea is that the church is a living thing. Christ's headship over the church means that he is the source of life for the church. And as in the body, life flows from the head to the body so spiritually spiritual life 
flows from Christ to the body, the church. And if the body is decapitated, that is to say, if the head is cut off from the body, the body dies. And if the church were cut off from Christ, it would immediately perish. Of course, such decapitation is impossible, but we speak this way to illustrate the point. Christ himself says to his disciples in John 15 verse 5, Without me ye can do nothing. Or, we could translate it this way, Severed from me, or cut off from me, ye can do nothing. And that means that there is a vital or living union between Christ in heaven and his church. And that explains the language of the New Testament. Repeatedly in the New Testament we read of being in Christ or in him. And if we're in Christ, we are connected to him. If we are not in Christ, we are not connected to him. We have no part in him. We do not enjoy any of his benefits if we are not in him. We do not possess grace or the Holy Spirit or righteousness or the forgiveness of sins or eternal life if we are not in him. In fact, so long as we are outside of Christ, in unbelief, we are exposed to the wrath of God. We are displeasing to him, and we are without God in the world. Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul writes that we were dead in trespasses and sins. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, we were, quote, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It makes all the difference, therefore, whether or not you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not in salvation. You don't possess salvation. You're not a member of the church. How then is a person in Christ? Well, the Bible speaks of this in different ways. First, the church is in Christ through God's election or choice of his people before the world began. God planned to give to his son a church. And God planned this in eternity before he made the universe. He chose the church as the body of Christ, and he chose each of the members of that church. Second, the church is in Christ because Christ purchased his church as his own possession. When Christ came into the world, he came to save from sin and death that people given to him by the Father in the decree of election. 
John 6, 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. So election, and then the cross, and then third, the church is in Christ through the call of the Holy Spirit. Christ in heaven sends his Holy Spirit to call and to gather out of the world all those whom God chose and all those for whom Christ died. And then fourth, the church is in Christ through faith. By faith alone, the individual sinner comes into possession of all of the benefits purchased by Christ on the cross. Grace, the Holy Spirit, righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And therefore, the unbeliever who is not in Christ is not a member of the church, and the unbeliever is commanded by God to believe in Jesus Christ, and God promises to incorporate all believers into his Son to make them members of Christ and his church, and to make them partakers of all of Christ's benefits. That's the first idea. Christ is the head of the church in this sense. He is the source of life for the church as a body, and he is the source of life for all of the members. There's another idea in this headship of Christ. He's not only the source of life as the head, he also rules the church. And that's easy enough to understand. As the head controls or rules the body, so Christ rules the church. Christ rules the church through his Holy Spirit and by his word. And that comes out in Ephesians 5, in verse 24, for example, the church is subject unto Christ. So Christ is not only the church's head, the source of the church's life, but Christ is also as the head, the Lord of the church. The Lord of the church. And the Lord owns and rules over that which he is the Lord. And since Christ died for the church, he owns the church. He owns the whole body. He owns all the members of the church. And since he rules the church, he commands the church to obey him, to keep his commandments. And as the church then recognizes and worships Jesus as her Lord, she willingly submits to him. And the church has one Lord, only one Lord. The church, therefore, does not determine things for herself, but rather Christ in heaven, he determines for the church what the church believes and what the church should teach. The church may not believe or teach anything contrary to Christ's will, which is the will of God, 
which is set forth in the Holy Scriptures. Christ determines also how the church should behave. He determines how the church shall worship. He determines the government of the church, the morality of the church, and the mission of the church. And no one else may interfere with this lordship of Christ over his church. The church may not permit anyone else to interfere in the lordship of Jesus Christ. The members of the church do not determine these things. How she worships, what she believes, what she preaches, how she lives, and so on. The church leaders, the pastor, elder, deacons, they do not determine these things. Society and public opinion do not determine these things. The government, through her laws, may not seek to determine these things. Christ alone rules the church. He alone is to be obeyed by the church. And so the church listens to only one voice and rejects all other voices which would seek to lead her astray. And the one voice that the church listens to is Christ's as he speaks to her in the scriptures. And so Jesus says about his people, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the source of life for the church. He rules the church. And that means, of course, that he has a body. And that body is made up of members. The church is not one person, but many persons. Just as our bodies are not one member, or one bodily part, but many members. There is one church, but there are many individuals who make up that one church. And as God has created the church, so he has determined the members of the church, who they are, how many they are, and their position in the body. And therefore, every member of the church, young, old, male, female, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, whatever color, whatever background they might have, every member of the church has his or her place, which is determined by God. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, Paul says, But now hath God set the members every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. That's true of our physical bodies. He has determined to place the liver in a certain place, and the lungs in another place, and the kneecap in a certain place. And that's true of the church. He has determined where all the members of the church belong. They are in the position that God has determined. That makes 
for true diversity in the body. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. Not all the members are eyes, for example. Every member is important to the makeup of the body. And every member is necessary for the well-being of the body. And every member of the body needs the other members of the body. And when one of the members becomes discontented, he thinks that his position in the body is unimportant or unnecessary. Or when one of the members of the body becomes proud, he thinks he has no need of the other members of the body. And so Paul, condemning both of those attitudes, explains it in 1 Corinthians 12. I'll read a few verses from that chapter. For the body, says Paul, is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? You can hear here, therefore, the discontentment of various members. I am not the hand. I want to be the hand. I refuse to be the foot because I want to be the hand. That's the idea of the illustration that Paul uses here. I'm not the eye. I want to be the eye because I'm not the eye. I don't want to be part of the body. And Paul says that's foolish talk, not sinful. If everyone was an eye, where is the hearing in the body? If everyone is an ear, then where is the smelling in the body? And so on. And then he adds later, And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And again, it's easy to understand that. The eye thinks, I am so great by myself, I don't need the hand. But of course, you need the hand and you need the eye and all the other bodily parts too for a body to function properly. And that's true of the church. Members of the body of Christ, members of the church, need one another. That's Paul's point. They serve one another. They love one another. That's the nature of a healthy body. There must not be rebellion of the body against the head. There must not be division among the members of the body. The church does not rebel against Christ the head, and Christians must not be divided against one another because each Christian has a place. And God has determined for his son that he should have a diverse but unified body. That's the first main figure that the New Testament uses to describe the church. The body of Christ. 
the body of Christ. The second main figure is the bride of Christ. The body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And here, the point of comparison is not so much a living body with its head, but the point of comparison here is the love that exists between a bride and a bridegroom. Love is part of this relationship that the church has with Christ and that Christ has with the church. In fact, Paul, in Ephesians 5, makes the love of Christ for the church a pattern for Christian marriages. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. In what manner? Even as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ show his love for the church? Verse 25, And he gave himself for it. Christ's love for the church, therefore, was sacrificial love. He offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross to rescue his beloved church from sin, death, and God's wrath. And that's the kind of love demanded of Christian husbands. A Christian husband is called to live for his wife, to endure hardship for his wife, to deny himself for the sake of his wife, for the welfare of his wife, and if necessary, to die to protect his wife. Just as Christ died for the salvation of his bride, the church. And then Paul goes on to explain this further in the next verses. What exactly does Christ do for his bride, the church? What did he do by giving himself for her? What was the purpose and result of that? Well, Paul gives two answers. First, his purpose is to sanctify and cleanse her. Verse 26, to sanctify and cleanse his church. Because the church, of course, is made up of sinners. The church is gathered from the multitude of sinners who live in this world. Sinners who are guilty before God, defiled through their sin. They have disobeyed God's commandments. They have a depraved nature. And how in the world could they become members of the Holy Church of Jesus Christ? The only way in which that can happen is if Christ himself removes their sin. And he does that by his blood. His blood is not only the basis for their forgiveness, but it's also the means by which the church is made clean, washed. The Bible speaks about being washed in the blood of Jesus or cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And the second purpose is connected to the first purpose, to present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, verse 27. And the purpose, therefore, is that he should have a church which is holy and without blemish. So Christ takes the church in her sin and misery, and he then forgives the church, and he cleanses the church, and then he starts this lifelong process of 
purifying the church so that on the last day when Christ returns and the whole church is before him in heaven, the church will be holy and without blemish, having not even a spot or a wrinkle to defile her appearance. And Christ does this by means of the word. Verse 26 expresses it this way, the washing of water by the word. And that's why Christians come to hear the preaching, because that's one of the main ways in which Christ sanctifies or cleanses the church. John 15, 3, Christ says to his disciples, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 17, 17, Christ prays to his Father, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the idea of the bride and the bridegroom is that the bridegroom, Jesus, loves the church and accomplishes her salvation. And that implies a calling, therefore, for the church herself, because the church is the bride of Christ, her calling is to be faithful to her heavenly bridegroom. A bride keeps herself pure for the bridegroom, so that on her wedding day, or their wedding day, they can enjoy pure, undefiled love. The church must not become dirty. The church must keep herself pure. And there are threats to the bride's purity. There are enemies in the world around the church who seek to defile the church and make her unclean. There's the world. The world seeks through sinful pleasures and wicked ideologies to defile Christ's church. There's the false church. The false church seeks to seduce the church through false doctrines and idolatry. There's the devil. The devil seeks to seduce the bride of Christ, who is the church, through temptations. And the church has her own sinful flesh, which is the enemy within the church, which seeks to defile her through wicked lusts. And so Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I am jealous, he says to the church in Corinth, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And he warns against those who preach another Jesus, warns against her receiving another spirit or another gospel. We must therefore, as Christians, as members of the church, be faithful to Jesus Christ, who is our faithful and loving bridegroom. We must be faithful to him even unto death. Now, since that's true, Christ is the head or the bridegroom of the church, and the church is the body or the bride of Christ, this means that the church has certain characteristics or attributes. And traditionally, the church has confessed these as unity, holiness, and Catholicity. One of the creeds of the church, we confess an or one 
Holy Catholic Church. Briefly explain those points. First, the church is one. The church is one. This is true because Christ is one. There is one Christ. There is one body of Christ. There is one head for the one body of Christ. There is one bridegroom and there is one bride. Although the church consists of many diverse members, the church has an essential unity. The church's unity is spiritual. The Holy Spirit, by working faith in all of the members, unites them all to Jesus Christ. He's the head, they're the body. And he unites them all to one another as well. And the church's unity then is the unity of faith. All Christians have the same Father, the same Lord. They all believe essentially the same truth. And so Paul can write in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope, of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all notice one 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 the calling of christians therefore is to strive for agreement in true faith and to separate themselves from those who do not confess the truth of God's word. Second, the church is holy. And that's true because Christ is holy. And the holy head and the holy bridegroom must have a holy body and a holy bride. But he makes the church holy. Doesn't find the church holy. He makes the church holy by the power of his grace and by his blood and holy spirit. And the church's holiness, then, is her devotion to him in love and her separation from all that is unholy and defiled. And the church's holiness is only, in this life, a beginning of holiness. But the goal for the church is that she shall one day be a glorious church, Ephesians 5, verse 27. One day she shall be without blood, or spot or blemish. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that the purpose of God's election of the church is that we should be holy and without blame before him. One holy third Catholic church. And that word Catholic is not the same as Roman Catholic. By Catholic with a small c, we mean universal. And again, the church is Catholic because Christ is Catholic. And by Catholic, we mean that Christ is the Savior of a worldwide, diverse, universal church. He's not the Savior of only a few people in one country of the world. He's the Savior of believers and their children from all the nations of the world. All nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And God's great purpose in history 
is to gather all of his elect people, all those for whom Christ died, from all the nations of the world, through the preaching of the gospel, and especially now through the mission work of the church, as the church goes out to into all the world to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And when God has finished with his church, finished gathering his church, the church will be complete and diverse. The church sings in Revelation 5 verse 9. Thou art worthy, they sing to Christ, thou art worthy for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Every kindred, tongue, people and nation. And even here this evening we have that in a small way before us. People from different backgrounds. People from different countries who believe in Jesus Christ and are thus members of the church. And that's why the church does mission work in our day. To continue God's great mission of gathering his church. There's one more aspect of the church that we must explain before we close. The church, which is the universal and spiritual body and bride of Christ, which consists of all those who are chosen in Christ, who believe in him, appears in history in the earth. It's not just this idea of the, all the Christians in the world in some nebulous sense, but rather the church becomes an institution. The church becomes visible. The church, therefore, is the gathering of believers and their children in a fixed location at a particular time. There was, for example, in the Bible, a church in Corinth. And there was a church in Ephesus. And there was a church in Laodicea. And there was a church in Pergamos, for example. And today, there's a church in one city, another city, one country, all kinds of churches. We must be clear, however, about the church. The church is not simply a Bible study. If you have a few people come together for a Bible study, that's not the church. The church is not a group of Christians who meet informally to pray. A prayer meeting is not the church. Those things are important. Those things are good. But they're not the church. Rather, the church is the official meeting of God's people. That's why the church is called the assembly in the Bible. It's the assembly of God's people. Gathering in the name of Jesus Christ to hear the word of Jesus Christ, to meet together for public worship under the oversight of those whom Christ has ordained as elders in his church. And the way, therefore, you identify a group of believers as a true church of Jesus Christ is by taking note of three distinct marks. You must judge all religious gatherings by these three marks. First, a true church preaches the pure gospel. A true church 
preaches the pure gospel. Which means a true church must have a preacher. A true church must have preaching by a man sent and equipped by Christ to proclaim the truth. Preaching is not the work of just anyone. A man who preaches must be sent, Paul says in Romans 10. The preacher must also have the right content. He must preach the word of God, the pure doctrine of the word of God. He may not preach his own opinions, his own fancies. He must preach the word of God purely. And where there is no pure preaching, but there's false preaching, there is no true church. There might be Christians there. There might be worship taking place there. There might be enthusiasm and sincerity there. But there is there no true church. The second mark, a true church administers purely the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Which sacraments require elders to be overseeing the sacraments. Without elders, without the pure administration of the sacraments, there is no church. Some religious groups, such as Rome, corrupt the sacraments, and they've lost the first mark already. They're not a church. Others neglect the sacraments, ignore them and don't use them. They're not a church either. There may be Christians there, but they're not a true church. And the third mark of a true church is, in a true church, there is faithful Christian discipline over the preaching, over the doctrine, and the lives of the members. Where members and pastors can preach and believe and behave as they please without consequences, there is no church, no true church. Christians might be there, but you don't have a true church of Jesus Christ. And so all Christians must judge. Does the body of believers with which I associate have these three marks? Does the body of believers with which I am planning to associate have these three marks? Does it at least have the first, which is the most important of the three marks? Is that group gaining or losing the marks? Is that church or is that group becoming more faithful, going in the right direction towards those three marks, or is that church becoming less faithful and thus falling away? And the believer, having judged from the word of God based upon those three marks, must join the most faithful manifestation of the true church that he can. He must do that for the glory of God, because God is glorified in the preaching of the word. 
And God is glorified in the sacraments. And God is glorified in Christian discipline. And that's the most important thing, the glory of God. He must do so too for his own spiritual welfare. And for the spiritual welfare of his children. Remember, the Lord uses the preaching, the word, to sanctify us. You'll not be sanctified in a false church where you're not taught the true word of God. But remember, before anyone can be a member of the church, he must believe in Christ. He must be in Christ, the church's head and the church's bridegroom. And thus he must believe in Christ, the Son of God, the one who was crucified, who rose again from the dead for the church's salvation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.